Good morning. Today's sermon text is from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, and can be found on page 1199 in the Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. James, chapter 5, 7 through 11. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you'll uh, pray with me before I begin, um, that would be wonderful. So if you just bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for um, just yet another day that we can come and that we can worship before you. We thank you for an opportunity to hear your word, uh, that we can hear it preached openly. Um, Lord, we thank you that that uh, you've given us the ability to understand it as well. I pray that as um, as I preach your word to the, the people here, Lord, that you would open all of our hearts and open all of our minds to your Holy Spirit. May he allow us to hear what you would have us hear in the midst of this, and may it allow us to grow closer to you in the process. And I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, if we were to make a list, there are probably lots of things that we could put on that list that Americans hate. Two things that would be right near the top of it, though, are waiting and suffering. I mean, think about it. We've got instant dinners. We've got microwave ovens. We've got cell phones that keep us attached to everybody so that we can be reached at the blink of an eye. I mean, we can even get the Internet on them so we can check scores for the games the minute they're happening. We've got express lanes in the grocery store. I mean, if you're me, sometimes you might look in the cart ahead and count to make sure that they have 12 items or less. And if not, you're like, come on, I want to get out of here quick. If we were to go into I-4 at the middle of rush hour, I think it wouldn't take much observation to find out that we don't really like to wait. I think if we're honest... Americans have very little patience at all. And if one look at suffering, well, if you're anything like me, you avoid suffering like the plague. This isn't to say we don't suffer. It's just to say that we do everything that we can to alleviate our suffering. Most of us are probably familiar with, say, actors or actresses who at some point in time have have been involved in substance abuse. I think one example that's relatively recent would be like Lindsay Lohan, who has recently spent some time in jail because of the fact that she got caught, I think, driving well under the influence of alcohol. Now, one might get to the point and say, she has everything. Why in the world does she need to use drugs and alcohol? I mean, maybe she actually enjoys it, and there's probably some truth to that. But I think even more than that is it allows her to not have to feel the things that hurt. I think most of us, if we were honest, would do the same thing. You see, she's not the only one. There's a tremendous amount of substance abuse in America today. And sometimes, yeah, again, it's for happy, fun times. But I think even more than that, 
It's for covering over the pain that we feel inside. We do the same thing in the church. Maybe it's not through alcohol and drugs. Maybe it is. But some other examples might be busyness, extensive TV watching, exercise, pornography. All of these things can be a way for us to cope through the pain because we can't handle it. You see, sometimes, and I wonder if this is even a little more on the insidious side, we just put on a happy face. We just act like it's okay because you know what? We're Christians and we're supposed to be joyous. So let's act joyous and maybe we will be. But the problem is, is when we do that, we've missed the experience that the Lord has brought us into. And every experience that we have has a purpose. We all know that we live in a world full of hardship. The world wasn't any different when James was teaching and writing and preaching. If we kind of want to go back through the book briefly, in chapter 1, he talks about how people handle trials. In chapter 2, he talks about how people have been showing favoritism to people who are older, or people who are richer and uh, people who are more important, uh, to the the, the lowering of those who are poorer. In chapter 5, in verses 1 through 6, and we'll just really talk through them briefly, he talks about how the rich are robbing their workers. They're just not paying them, and they're robbing the poor. And it's at this very point that James brings a very simple exhortation. He says, be patient. You see, this kind of patience, though, I mean, patient, really? This isn't just patience for the sake of patience. This is a patience that's grounded in the fact that Christ is coming back. See, what James wanted his readers to know, and I think us as well then, is that because the Lord is coming back, we're able to patiently endure all kinds of hardships. And now in order to understand this, we're going to look at three questions that you can see up here. Uh, The first is, how do we have patience in the midst of injustice? The second is, how does community help us to be patient? And the third is, how do we have patience in the midst of our suffering? As we look at the first question, I think it's really important to say we can't understand what it means to have patience and injustice until we realize that in some form or another we've all suffered injustice. Now, injustice is one of those words that we tend to think is like, have a really big connotation. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just things not being right. Justice is the things that are right, the things that are deserved. And injustice is when that isn't. And we all experience injustice in some form or another. Well, James begins this passage with the words, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. So the question we have is, what are we supposed to be patient in? Well, if we really look at the first six verses, we find out some things about how they're called to be patient. You see, these rich people who have been robbing them have hoarded wealth. They've kept it away from the, the community as a whole. It says that they've failed to pay their workers. I mean, that's wrong in itself. And ultimately, they've lived a life of luxury entirely for themselves. Now, if ever there was a time that we want labor unions, this really sounds like the time that we'd want them. But sadly enough, there weren't. The people just had to suffer. But rather than telling all the people who are suffering to seek justice, which may not have been wrong, or even to seek vengeance, which would be wrong, James tells them, be patient. 
In my most honest moments, this kind of scripture, it makes me angry. Why is it that the people of God are called to suffer? Well, injustice at the hands of others while those very same people are able to reap the benefits of their sin. When we think about genocide, say in the last 20 years, there was one in Rwanda, there was a genocide in the Sudan that just probably ended recently. The idea of patience or endurance in the midst of that is the farthest thing from our minds. And I think there's a good thing about that. In fact, the thing that we want to say is we want it stopped. We want it stopped now. I don't want to wait for it. But in the end, we can't control whether or not they start or stop. What we're called to do in the midst of the suffering is to endure, is to be patient. But, you know, that's a really extreme example. So let's kind of take it down a little a notch. Remember back in the early 2000s, uh, there was a company referred to as Enron. Um, Enron was a up-and-coming company. Uh, it was considered one of the, the most uh, versatile companies in the market. If you worked for them, you probably made a lot of money. Um, you enjoyed a great lifestyle. You probably had huge stock options. Uh, and we're looking forward to a very early retirement. But then all of a sudden, because of the, the fraud, the lying, the cheating, and the stealing of the people who actually run the company, poof, it's gone. And you're left with nothing. Everything that you've worked for is gone. What do you do in the midst of that? Well, James says, be patient, brothers and sisters. What's your experience? Just take a second to think about it. For some of you, it could be, especially in this economic climate, that you've lost your job. Maybe you've kept your job, but you've lost some salary. Those are tremendously hard things. Maybe you have a boss who walks all over you or someone who uses you to make himself look better. I'm sure it could be any number of other things that that we don't have time to mention. But in the end, James' response is to be patient. Now, if you're anything like me in the midst of this, the thing you want to ask God is, how in the world am I supposed to be patient? And you're probably going to be a little impatient when you do it. The good thing is, is James doesn't leave us out to dry here. James fills in blanks. James says, we're able to be patient because of the fact that Christ is coming back. And just to make sure you don't miss it, he mentions it twice. He says it in verse 7, and he says it again in verse 8. This is music to the believer's ears. Because when Christ comes back, he sets to right all injustice. When Christ comes back, he's the one who can end all genocide. He's the one that can end Everything that could happen. Well, if we look at the first six verses of chapter 5, James uses extremely strong language talking about the injustice going on. He says that the people who are doing that, their riches are going to corrode, and their riches are going to turn to rust. He goes on to say that they're fattening themselves for the slaughter. I don't know about you, but I do not want to fatten myself for the slaughter. It's a rather strong picture. But really, he's talking about the future judgment that they have to look forward to. This isn't just a 10 or 20 year prison sentence for, you know, lying, stealing, and taking other people's money. It's an eternity in which they experience God's wrath. 
And ultimately, it's a wrath that we wouldn't even wish on those people for the same things that they did. So James really wants us to understand that that God is going to set things right. But he goes on. He goes to show us that patience is grounded in a word picture. He uses the example of a farmer who's waiting for the growth of his crops. Now, the crop's ability to yield has everything to do with the fact that it rains. The problem for the farmer is he can't control the rain. The rain comes if God brings it, and the rain doesn't if God doesn't. And so he's entirely dependent on the Lord for him to have any yield in the crops. But the one thing the farmer does know is that when the rain comes, so will the crops. And when the crops come, he'll be blessed. Well, the same is true for us. In the midst of our injustice and experience of injustice, we can't control the events that cause it. We can't control the events that would raise up dictators that do genocides. We can't control the events of people who lie and cheat and steal. There's nothing we can do about that. But we can wait. We can wait until Jesus comes back, which is yet another event we're not able to control. But we know that when he does, that we're going to be blessed because he's going to set everything right. So what do we do with that? I mean, you could easily take what I'm saying to mean, okay, I'm going to just sit down and I'm going to wait, and that's it. But you see, God's not asking us to sit passively on the sidelines. He's asking us to live our lives actively, and that our patience is an active patience. Just like the farmer who waits for the rain continues to plant the field because he knows that he has to do that. It's part of his life because he knows the rain's going to come. See, ultimately, we have to continue to strive because we know the Lord controls the outcome. And the justice that's going to be meted out is the Lord's justice. And our ability to be patient ultimately comes from the Lord. So if we think briefly back to the Enron example, again, imagine that you're one of those people who's been affected by the scandal. You've lost everything. There's a couple different things you could do. One is you could go and hire a nice high-priced attorney and squeeze out every penny of justice that you can get. Odds are it's nothing near what you lost. I'm not saying that going to a lawyer would be wrong. In this case, it's probably the right thing to do. But at the same time, if your focus is simply on getting the justice out yourself, you're not going to get it. But what would it look like for us to cry out to the Lord, to say, Lord, I can't do anything in this situation. I need you. I need the patience that only you can give. Because ultimately... The patience that he gives is the patience that you need. And the justice that he gives is the justice that you need. At this point, though, James is giving us kind of a a knowledge example. But he goes on to show us that the ability to endure sufferings and trials isn't just about knowing how to do it. There's an experiential aspect to it as well. You see, because the Lord is gracious, he doesn't want us to suffer alone. The great thing is the Lord is always with us. But even more than that, He gives us each other. In fact, we are one of the most gracious gifts that we could ever have in the midst of suffering is the fact that we've all experienced suffering and that we can give help to each other. You see, James offers us a negative example to highlight the positive of how we should be with each other in community. In verse 9, he says, Don't grumble against each other or you too will be judged. 
But what's going on in this particular section? I mean, he talks about suffering in the first two verses, and he's going to talk about suffering in the last two verses. But in this middle, he kind of walks into grumbling. kind of feels like it doesn't make sense at this point. Well, as I was looking into this, there was a commentator I came across who makes a great point. And here's what he says. He says, Grumbling against those who are close to us is particularly likely to occur when we're under pressure or facing difficult circumstances. Makes sense, doesn't it? Have a bad day at work. You get in a car accident. Any of those things. Who are the people that tend to experience the brunt of that? It's your family. Your friends. Maybe your small group. Now, if we're sharing these experiences and actually saying, hey, this is what's going on, and this is how I feel about it, like, I think the community is a wonderful place to do that. But oftentimes, those negative experiences aren't shared, but they turn to complaint. And complaint turns to grumbling. And grumbling leads to bitterness. And when, it's, and when we reach bitterness, it's always misdirected against the people we care about. I think this is kind of what James might be talking about in this passage. You see, there's poverty and persecution in this congregation. We've seen it already as we've looked a little bit today. There's a great military tactic, I think, that kind of goes with this pretty well. It's called the propaganda campaign. Uh, We used it, I know, back in World War II. Um, I know that we used it back in the first desert storm. My brother was there. I have one of the little propaganda leaflets that that they were dropping on people. And basically what it said is, you're going to lose. You have no hope of victory. The enemy's at your doorstep. Give up now, and everything will be okay. If you'd like to give up, we're over here. Drop your weapons. See, the great thing about a propaganda campaign is it begins to take a unified force. It gets them to question their unity. They turn on each other. And once they turn on each other, the battle's over. The victory's won. And this is kind of what we don't want to see. What would it look like if you had a poverty-stricken congregation, like the one that James is talking about, if they were to bear with one another, if they were not grumble at each other but encourage each other and love each other? What would it look like if we were to do the same? Well, kind of an example, if you were here last week, um, Matt spoke and he he talked about uh, Anne Rice. And I want to revisit that a little bit. And if you weren't here, I have her quote up here. Um, Here's her comment on, on Christians and Christianity. She says, It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. Now, those are really, really strong words for the kind of describe her experience. She says, for 10 years I've tried, I've failed, and I'm an outsider. My guess is is that she's experienced some kind of grumbling. She's probably been hurt. And her response is to say, I'm done. I'm leaving the community. As I was thinking about this this week, I came across an open letter to Anne Rice by a woman named Karen Spears Zacharias. Now, she's also an author, and she's also a Christian. Now, her response is pretty interesting, and we're going to look at it. It's pretty long. We'll look at it in two sections. The first part says, I respect your decision. I can't even count the number of times I've felt the exact same way, but I like the gumption to declare it as boldly as you've done. I mean, here she agrees. She's experienced the same thing, and her desire is to do the same thing. But you see, she goes on, and I think what she says here is really important. She says, I also believe God created us so that we are able to identify with each other. He created us to feel what others feel. Then she tells a story 
She says, down the pew directly in front of me sat a young woman, another single mom with another infant child to raise alone. I watched as a white-haired lady walked across the aisle during the singing, took that young woman's face into her withered hands and spoke words of encouragement and love to her. I stood there weeping because they belonged to a flawed but courageous community. They discovered ways to share in the sufferings and joys of one another despite disappointments. What I really like about this quote is that she realizes the difficulty of community. Community is messy. The reality is, as we engage in each other's lives, we are going to hurt each other. We are going to cause problems. It's not always going to be pretty. But at the same time, as she understands that, she, she shows just how important it is to be involved in others' lives. Sian Rice felt a tension of grumbling and decided to leave the community. Zacharias, on the other hand, felt that exact same pull, but she also saw God's grace in the midst of it. See, when we suffer, we have one of God's greatest gifts of grace in the midst of our suffering, and that's each other. See, the hard thing about suffering, and sometimes the hard thing about worshiping a God who is invisible, is there are times when we don't actually feel like he's there. I know for me, sometimes in the worst of times, it's like, God, are you even here? And you can't look and see him. You can't suddenly be like, oh, there you are. But sometimes we can feel him through the presence of other people. And that's just as much God's presence as when we can feel him when we don't see him. So what about you? What's your situation? Are you in a marriage where it's just really hard to love your spouse? The frustration for that has got to come out somewhere. Maybe you don't say anything to anybody, but it probably comes out against your family. It probably comes out against your coworkers. And it probably comes out against your friends. Maybe when you're around them, you just smile and act happy. But when you get in your car and you go home, all you want to do is complain about it and grumble about it. How about when you come to the church? When you come here, there's hundreds of people here that can experience with you the suffering that you have. But do you put on a happy face and just smile and act as if everything's fine when the world around you is falling apart? When you do that, you miss out on God's physical presence. And that's the church. See, James then goes on to finish this section. And he finishes this section by pointing again to Christ's return. He says, the judge is near. Now, yes, he talks about how if they grumble, they could be judged. But for the scope of what we're talking about, I'm not going to talk about that specifically. But the Lord's return is near. He's coming back. And the point of that is there is an end to suffering. But when we grumble when we fight against each other as opposed to leaning into each other and relying on each other, we undercut the grace that God has for us. We undercut the ability to be patient in the midst of suffering and in the midst of hard times. You see, when Christ returns, there won't be any more grumbling. And Rice isn't going to have to worry about quarrelsome Christians because at the very least, there'll be no more quarreling. We won't have to worry about sin because there'll be no more sin. We won't have to worry about suffering and sickness because it'll all be gone. And these are the gifts. 
that allow us to endure our hard circumstances. So having seen how patience and injustice and having seen how the community can help in the midst of suffering, James returns again to the experience of suffering. He goes on to give an answer to how we can, how we can have patience in our suffering, but rather than giving a teaching, rather than just saying, you know, do this, don't do this, and here's how you do it, he gives a wonderful illustration. In fact, he gives two, but for the sake of time, we're going to look at one. He gives a story of Job. I'm not sure how familiar you all, all are with the story of Job, so I'm going to tell it. See, Job was a, was a righteous man. Um, it says that he did what was right in the Lord's eyes. And the Lord saw Job, and he was happy. And so he turned to Satan and said, Satan, look at my servant Job. He's righteous in all that he does. Satan's response is probably pretty typical. It's like, of course he's happy. He's one of the richest guys around. He's probably got a beautiful family. He's not sick. Everything's great. He's a happy man. I worship you too if that were the case kind of thing. You know? And so, so God's like, okay, how about this? You go ahead and test Job. You can do anything you want, but you can't touch him. Satan says, great. I'll take care of that. So he goes and he kills all of his family. Takes away all of his wealth. Job's response in that was to say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The text goes on to tell us he didn't sin in the Lord's eyes when he did that. So God goes back to Satan and says, look, Satan, Job is a righteous man. You took away everything from him. And yet he still worships. He's still righteous. Satan's like, okay, I understand that. We really know that everyone's well-being and their health is really where their happiness is. So let me hurt him physically, and then he's going to curse you. So God says, okay. You can't hurt him, or you can't kill him, but you can hurt him. And so Satan goes, and Satan afflicts him with sores from head to toe. I can't imagine what head-to-toe sores would be like. All I know is that it forced Job to sit in ashes and scrape the sores away. He was in tremendous suffering. Job's response, again, was, how can we accept good from the Lord but not accept bad at the same time? And again, it says that he didn't sin in what he did. But at this very same point, Job's wife, in this particular case, the bastion of good advice, says, why don't you just curse God and die? But Job understands that life isn't always perfect. So Job's friends come. Community, great. That's what we've been talking about the whole time. They sit with him for a couple days in silence. It's probably the best couple days he had. And then they open their mouths, and they sound like a grumbling community. Ultimately, they accuse him of being unrighteous. They're like, well, you know, Maybe you did sin, and, and God's just judging you for your sin. Job says, no. No, I haven't done anything different than I've ever done. But at the same time, he's asking the Lord, why? Why? So at the, end of the, at the end of the story, the Lord answers. Ultimately, his answers probably isn't the kind of answer we're all hoping for. We're hoping that he'd give him point by point, this is why I did it, and here's what you should learn. But ultimately, he says, you wouldn't understand. It's not for you to understand. And Job accepted that. After that, the Lord gave him far more than he ever had and blessed him again. 
See, the thing is, is our God hasn't changed. He's the same now as he was then. In the midst of our circumstances, our God is still compassionate. He's still merciful toward us. In fact, the second blessings that Job received are nothing compared to the second blessings that we'll receive when Christ returns. Because you see, if Jesus is really coming back, then we get to experience eternity with him. An eternity where we'll never see suffering. An eternity where everything is the way it's supposed to be. See, Job at some point is probably going to suffer again. I'm pretty sure that he died. And so he had to go through that. And we're going to suffer again too. But when Christ returns, all suffering ends. And that's why we continue to look upon Christ's return as the foundation for our patience. It's what it's based out of. See, when I was a teenager, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. Two to three months later, he died. Now, on just the pure level of losing a father, that was hard. But there were actually quite a few other things that came with it, questions that we just didn't know what to deal with at the time. We had financial considerations like, well, how are we going to live now that you know, one of the main monetary members of the family is gone. My brother lived with us at the time and kind of was trying to play the father role, and I really wanted nothing to do with that. So there were the questions of, like, what's the new dynamic in the family? Who's going to be the guy in the house, and who's going to say kind of how we do things? But ultimately, it was that he missed out on so many things. But in the, even in the midst of this, the Lord was merciful to me. You see, it's because of the circumstances around my father's death that I was able to go to Michigan State. And while I was there is where I really began to understand what it meant to follow the Lord. It was while I was in college that my call to ministry occurred. And there's no way it could have happened if my dad didn't die. But at the same time, in some ways I actually kind of still feel the sting of his death now. You see, there there are things that he's just never going to see. Like... I used to swim in high school, and my dad went to all of my swim meets. My goal was to break six minutes in a 500, and I did, but he never saw it. He never saw me graduate from high school or college. He's never met my wife. He'll never meet our future children. But ultimately, and I think this is the part that hurts most, is that we'll never be able to work through the fractures in our own relationship. But at the same time, I know that Christ is coming back. And when he does, all of that suffering ends. And it's my hope that when he does, I can talk to my dad about those things. He'll be able to have a conversation about it. But until then, I wait. And until then, we all wait. See, back in the 1980s, there's a singer by the name of Tom Petty who wrote a song called The Waiting. I'd sing it for you, but honestly, you don't want to hear it. Um, The chorus goes something like this, though. You take it on faith, and you take it to the heart, but the waiting is the hardest part. I don't think he understood how right that he really is. I titled this sermon The Power of Godly Endurance, and what's the power of godly endurance? It's patience. It's patience rooted in the fact that we know 
that Christ is coming back. We endure because we know that when he does, he'll set all things right. We endure because he knows until he comes back, we have a community of people around us who can love us and who can suffer with us and who can help us in the midst of our suffering. We endure because God is merciful and ultimately will one day end all suffering. See, the letter of James ends in a very similar way to what it begins. In chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, James says this. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The perseverance that James is talking about is what I'm calling godly endurance. It's my sincere prayer that as we continue in our lives, that God will do this for us. That our perseverance will grow, and because of that, that our character will mature, and that ultimately, we lack in nothing. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you and we thank you that you are with us in the midst of our suffering. We thank you that you have given us people who are around us, who can help us, and who can show us you in the midst of our suffering. Ultimately, we thank you that you are coming back. We eagerly await that day, and we eagerly await what life will look like. But until then, I pray with James that for all of us, you would grow our perseverance, that we may be mature, that we may be complete, lacking in nothing. Amen. Amen.